Welcome to Immigration Uncovered, the DocketWise video podcast where we dive deep into the dynamic world of immigration law, shedding light on the latest developments, cutting-edge practice management strategies, and the transformative impact of legal technology. I'm James Pittman. Today, Palestinians in crisis, the specific obstacles faced by Palestinian applicants in the U.S. immigration system. I have two guests today. We have Marty Rosenbluth, who is an immigration attorney based in Lumpkin, Georgia, with over 40 years of experience in social change, human rights, and non-governmental organizations. He works uh, frequently at the notorious Stewart Detention Center and the Stewart Immigration Court. And Haya Abdel, an attorney in private practice managing partner of AFI Law. So Haya, can you tell us about your journey as an immigration lawyer and the areas that you currently focus on? Yes, James. So I'm a daughter of an immigrant here from Palestine and always been interested in immigration law. I was doing petitions for my brothers when they were marrying Palestinians. And I also petitioned my ex-husband to come here as well. Then when I went to law school, I um, interned for the Florence Project in Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona. And I also took some immigration courses at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And then after I graduated, I just knew that I, I wanted to get in, into immigration law. And uh, I took some mentors from AILA <laughs> really? and just started doing removal work, just going to Eloy and Florence until I got some experience after bonds and then started doing petitions for asylum. And the Middle Eastern community in Arizona is big, but it mostly consisted of Iraqis um, who were doing refugee status. When I came here to Florida, I took the bar exam again and passed, thankfully, and started doing more work with Palestinians because we have a big Palestinian community here. Very nice. Uh, so. Hi, let's start with some basics. So let's talk about if you're bringing a, Palest a Palestinian uh, to the United States, what are some of the practical obstacles and challenges they would face in actually completing the immigration process? I mean, they are, you know, residing on a territory, you know, that is under occupation subject to specific set of restrictions. Talk, talk about some of the hurdles that you've seen people face. So I think the biggest hurdle I've seen them face is getting what's called a personal permit. A personal permit is required for anyone in the West Bank to travel into East Jerusalem. And that's, of course, where your interview is at. For women, it's it's been a little easier to get that. But for males, especially the young males, marrying age males, that's a little harder. They also require a police certificate from the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, and that's very hard for them to get as well. Once you get that personal permit, which is called Tasriyah, usually it takes a couple of months for you to get it, you go to your interview. Most challenging was to keep changing that interview. So every time there's something going on in Tafada, another uprising. The facility that, that approves those uh, is closed down. And then even if you have an interview there, you end up missing it. Let's talk about some of the identity, like what are the identity documents that Palestinian nationals uh, typically carry that they would be using if they were applying for a visa? I mean, 
you have the ones residing on the West Bank. You have the ones residing in Gaza. I mean, are, do it does each do they have the same identity documents? What sort of document? So you always have to carry your Palestinian Hawiya. That's your identity card. Even if you come here to the United States, like my father did, and get U.S. citizenship, you are not treated upon the U.S. citizen first. You're treated as an identity carrier of the West Bank. And I think, I believe in Gaza, they have the same identity documents. So when we would come from California, that's where I was raised, when we would come to the West Bank, we would go through the IDF patrol in the Jordanian side. They would Jordan. send my father in one location and us in a different location. So anyone who is a United States citizen only is treated as an American. But anyone who's a United States citizen and a West Bank identity card holder is treated as a Palestinian. So does that identity card, so what kind of a, I mean, what do they, what do they use as their passport though, for purposes of getting out of the, getting out of the area? That's actually very interesting. Thank you for asking that. Um, many people don't know that Palestinians, although we had passports issued from 1921 to 1948, that was no longer allowed. So Palestinians in Gaza would be issued passports to travel only up until I believe 1988 from Egypt and the Palestinians in the West Bank were issued their travel documents from Jordan. Another way to get travel documents was to get a temporary a passport that didn't show that you were Puerto Rican, but that allowed you to travel. And in Puerto Rico, which is a U.S. territory, allowed those travel documents to Palestinians. So when my father was 17 years old, went on a ship went straight to Egypt, and then got on a plane to Puerto Rico because his travel documents were from Puerto Rico. So wait, let's, let me, let me add. So how, how, how does that work? I mean, Puerto Rico being a U.S. territory, how does it have an authority to issue a document to an unrelated person for purposes of international travel? So in, I believe it was 1965, it was pre-1965 that Puerto Rico was still allowed to do that. And then after that, the U.S. kind of overhauled what Puerto Rico was allowed and not allowed to do because everyone who was there was getting uh, citizenship. So, But it was a way for a lot of Palestinian immigrants to get out in the 1960s. That's very interesting. I bet a lot of people don't know about that. Hmm. Yeah. And do you have a sense, so, so, and, and what you're describing, the, the, the issuance of documents from Egypt or from Jordan, is it, has that uh, still been going on in recent years? Is that still the, the current procedure? That was one of the main purposes of the Oslo Accords was to create a Palestinian identity. So in 1995, Oslo Accords made it possible for the Palestinian Authority to issue Palestinian passports to Palestinian people. How about the role of the, the refugee status and the refugee card? I mean, who... Who would be carrying a refugee card? What is the use of it? How is it replaced uh, if it's lost? Or can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So I've never carried a refugee card only because my father, while he was from Palestine, he is in the same village that his grandfathers and the whole generation of our family is from. My mother family did carry refugee cards. They were Palestinian 
from a town next to East Jerusalem. I think it was called Ain Karim. And they were sent to refugee camps in Jordan. So in Jordan, these refugee camps are run by the United Nations. I think it's UNRWA right now, UNRWA. You basically stay in the refugee camps. Once you give up that refugee card, you're allowed to go to the regular schools and so on in Jordan. You just become a Jordanian citizen, really, at that point. But you're giving up your refugee card. Big issue with that is the people that decided to stay. So my maternal grandfather, he decided to leave, became a Jordanian citizen, worked for King Hussein, actually. His sisters did not. So they stayed in the refugee camps in Jordan. And they're still there today. You know, I believe about 76 years later, carrying these UN refugee cards that said that they will be allowed to return home when the war is over. Wow. So a lot of this issue is the right to return it, to them is inalienable. And it is. But how can they return now that there is Israeli citizens there in the towns and they would Probably their population, of course, is, is going to outnumber those citizens, making the Israelis a minority. Yes, that is. That, yes, that's that's one of the key, uh, one of the key political problems. Let's bring in Marty. Welcome, Marty Rosenbluth, a longtime immigration attorney. Can you tell us about your journey as an immigration lawyer, your current areas of specialization, and how you got involved in the Palestinian issues? In how many minutes? Um, so yeah, um, yeah. I mean, um, I actually um, got into immigration law while I was in law school. I spent the prior twenty-five years doing um, human rights work full time on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and it was only when I was in law school that I switched to doing um, immigration. So I, I was one of those people who was a thousand percent sure why. I was going to law school. I wanted to continue doing international human rights work, but I switched when I was in law school. Got it. Understood. And you're currently you're focused on removal cases. Is that right? Do you want to just describe what your caseload is like these days? Well, I my office is five minutes from the Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia. It's the largest detention center east of the Mississippi. And I'm the only immigration attorney in town. They build these detention centers in the middle of nowhere to make it very difficult for people to have access to counsel. I drive an hour each way to go grocery shop. But no, my practice at the moment is 100% on defense against removal. And almost all my cases are asylum-based. Okay, understood. Uh, well, do you want to um, provide us with some insights into... Uh, you know, how uh, Palestinians have fared in the removal process and, and give us, a, you know, some highlights. One of the big problems is, I, I, I don't want to say it's willful, but um, um, it's just ignorance on the part of the judges, on the part of the prosecutors about the situation in the occupied territories. So, I mean, I have to kind of start at square one to, to educate them about you know okay. what's going on there because they really don't understand. They don't understand the difference between Palestinians in the West Bank, Palestinians in Gaza, Palestinians in Israel, Palestinians in Jerusalem. They just don't have any clue. Um, so we have to do really, really basic education in order to defend our clients. Well, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, because this you see this as an issue in removal. When you're making various claims, you have to sort of explain the geography of the occupation 
and how the circumstances there based on the geography of the occupation fits into the claim that you're making in immigration court. So I know you mentioned to me that there was an area A, B, and C of the occupied territories. Do you want to talk about, uh, give us an overview of the geographic division of the territories? If I have a claim from Peru, it's very straightforward. You know, the mm -hmm. judge can understand Peru. In the West Bank, and I'll, I'll give you a recent example. My actual specialty is a, a type of asylum called deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. It's a very long phrase. But that's for people who have like serious uh, criminal convictions. So I had a Palestinian client recently, whose case we won, who, I mean, he left Palestine when he was like three years old. He hasn't been back. But he had um, some pretty serious drug convictions. And he's from a tiny village in the Coquilia area. And a big part of our claim was that if he was sent back, that he would be confined to this teeny tiny village in the Coquilia area. Now, he's got some pretty serious mental health issues. He's got some pretty serious, you know, drug addiction issues. So one of the things that we argued in the case was that it would be impossible for him to obtain the mental health services that he needed and the drug treatment that he needed when he would be confined to these teeny tiny areas. Now, the only way I can explain it simply is uh, the West Bank looks like a slice of Swiss cheese. It's really the uh -huh. only way to explain it, that you have Palestinian areas that are under exclusive Palestinian control, security and civil, and to travel from one of those areas to another one of those areas, you need permits from the military. That's area A. Then you have area B, okay, which is under Palestinian civil control and under Israeli Israeli security control, and even to travel from one of those areas to another one of those areas, you need permits from the military. And to travel from area C to area B, you need permits from the Israeli military. I mean, the largest area is under exclusive Israeli military control for civil purposes and for military purposes. You know, people are just basically trapped. So in terms of their daily lives, uh, I mean, you know, what does it impact in terms of, I know it impacts probably many aspects of their lives, but just give us an example and how, you know, how that has fit into some of the claims that you've made. I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't even talk yet about my clients from Gaza. I mean, Gaza is, is a whole different scenario. Well, let's talk about that. My, my Palestinian clients who are going to be deported back to Gaza, as we know, and unfortunately what's playing out there now, I mean, Gaza is a gigantic prison. You know, in terms of the restrictions, okay, um, then I'll go back to this case as an example. Okay, so this client um, had some pretty major drug convictions in the United States, okay? So if he were to be sent back, to the West Bank, the risk factors that he would face, for example, are, first of all, we know, I would say, I mean, I'll go as far as saying 100%, right, that based on his conviction records, the Israeli military will try to recruit him as a collaborator, right? That's what they do. They, they rely on, you know, these collaborators to give them information. So as soon as his plane lands, they're going to take him up and say, look, 
you know, if you want access to drugs, we can help you. All we want is information, right? You just have to provide us with information. Of course, this guy is going to say, you know, no way. But he will still be suspected as being a collaborator by the Palestinian authorities and by others in the Palestinian community because they know that they try to recruit people who have drug problems as collaborators. And if he doesn't collaborate, if he doesn't give them the information, they're not going to give him permission to travel anywhere. Because, I mean, that's the trade-off. They trade off permits, right, for information. So since he's not going to collaborate with the Israeli authorities, he's going to be stuck in this teeny tiny village. And... They can make other threats against him as well. Now, he hasn't lived in, in this village since he was, you know, three years old. His family doesn't have any property left in the village. He doesn't have any family left in the village. So, I mean, he, he's not going to be able to get a job. He's not going to be able to get housing. And he's going to be trapped in this teeny tiny village. And that's a pretty typical case for my caseload. Let's talk about when you, if you're making a cat claim, Convention Against Torture, CAT, are you often claiming that the torture is going to be by the Israeli military, by the Palestinian Authority, by both? How, 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 what's the, what are some of the fact patterns? Viewing his case, um, I mean, he has several risk factors. Yes, from the Israeli military. I mean, we can, you know, talk for, I mean, hours about the use of torture by the Israeli military. I mean, I did human rights work on the ground there for seven and a half years during the first Palestinian uprising. I mean, the use of torture by the Israeli military, I mean, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that if you get detained by the Israeli military that you won't get tortured. I mean, torture is in fact the rule. We also fear um, that he would be tortured by the Palestinian Authority. And in all honesty, I, I have to say this, the most depressing thing that I've heard in all my human rights work is that we found out that the torturers who were working for the Palestinian Authority learned their torture techniques when they were tortured by the Israelis. Sadly, it's not surprising. And he also faced risk of being tortured by, by Hamas since Hamas controls a large part of the, um, the areas up there. So, I mean, he faced... Um, the risk of torture from three separate sources. So suppose under the current circumstances, you know, with military conflict actively going on, if you had a client from Gaza who was in removal, you know, what would be your go-to, you know, claims that you'd be making right now? Well, and the thing is, is that um, they don't really care um, what's going on now. I mean, they would just basically, you know, hold them until um, the situation, you know, stabilized. I mean, I've tried not just in Palestine, but in a few other countries to argue that the situation at the moment that there was a flare up and they're like, well, you know, that might change. So I don't really think that would help. Of course, I would make the argument. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I would say, you know, a look at the situation there now is very unstable. He can't be sent back. And most judges won't necessarily take that into account. Let me ask a question either for Marty or for Haya. Um, have you heard of any effort to have DHS designate Palestinians for TPS? I mean, there have been a lot of designations and redesignations coming out recently with Venezuela and other countries. Um, and I'm just wondering, I cannot recall, I, I personally don't recall, maybe you do, whether Palestinians have ever been covered under TPS 
Uh, any thoughts on that topic? TPS is not available to Palestinians because then the United States government would basically be saying that Palestinians cannot live under IDF control or this is an occupation, which they have not said those words. They don't want to say those words. They keep calling this war when it's not a war. It's basically just one side bombing civilians. As a Palestinian, I cannot carry a weapon. Even in my home, I cannot own a weapon, but the Ill is illegal settlers can. They, they can all the time. So designating it as TPS would actually mean that those settlers in Shiloh are coming down to our town and, you know, murdering and bombing um, the homes and burning down our crops and giving them that kind of designation that they are, it's not a suitable place to live is not what the Uni United States wants to do because that's against the Israeli government. There's an Arabic expression, which is Bukra uh, fil mishmish, which means uh, tomorrow during the apricot seasons, which means it'll never happen. I mean, gotcha. no, no American politician is going to, you know, speak in favor of, of TPS for Palestinians. And I think if anyone ever did, you know, endorse that, I don't even want to think of the political consequences. So, no, that's never going to happen. It, and this is also true in the asylum process. I mean, the asylum process, not just in Palestine, OK, but everywhere else, it's incredibly politicized. So. Most asylum claims the go-to resource for the judge is the U.S. State Department report. So if you try to present information that contradicts the U.S. State Department report, you have a tough thing. And I, I want to, I'm trying to think of a, of a, of a proper term, but the, the U.S. State Department report on human rights and the occupied territories and for Palestinians and Israel is just grossly, grossly, grossly inadequate and inaccurate. Well, let's let's give us some highlights and, and talk about why you believe that to be the case. What comes out in these reports and the media is completely fabricated. So, for example, I'm from a village called Tumusaya. Tumusaya is about less than 15 miles from Ramallah. And Ramallah is an area A. So area A means... Palestinian Authority control. But to Musaya, half of our fields were taken by the settlements of Shiloh, including some of my grandfather's fields. The olive groves were all taken and the settlement of Shiloh was built on those olive groves. The IDF is there to protect the settlers. When I want to go to Ramallah, it takes less than 15 miles away. It takes me about an hour and a half because of all the IDF checkpoints on the way. And I'm saying about an hour to an hour and a half for me as a U.S. citizen carrying a passport. For my cousin, it would be two, two and a half hours to get there. When something occurs, and that's how they take these groves, is around October, I believe, there is a season called Jadizatun, which means we go and we pick the olives off our trees. So they close the schools down. There's only one female school and one all boys school. So they close the schools down and all the kids go with their parents to the groves, to their land to pick off the uh, olive trees. That's the season that the settlers decide to come down 
and terrorize and burn the cars and shoot, you know, even into the air. On um, June 21st, one of um, one of our villagers died. But uh, usually they come to terrorize us so that we don't come back. Our recourse as an area B is not to go to the Palestinian Authority because they don't have that right. What our recourse is, the IDF comes down oh, after they protect the settlers, make sure that nobody gets back at them for what they did. They go and tell us, go and make a report to Beit-il. Beit-il is where the IDF is supposed to be there taking these reports from the villagers about what happened to them. By the time these reports come to the U.S., there is nothing in there about all the terrorism that happened to the villagers. Nothing. It's completely fabricated to say that a villager hit one of the settlers. And that villager, they will go to his house and bomb his house. Take it down. Let's bring let's bring Marty back in. Marty, about the State Department's uh, report of country conditions. Do you want to add anything where you find uh, inaccuracies or shortcomings and some of the issues that's created in your cases? Well, let's just look at it structurally, okay? The State Department report for Peru is written by the embassy in Peru. The State Department report on the Dominican Republic is written by the embassy in the Dominican Republic. The State Department report on Israel and Palestine is written in Washington, D.C. It's written at headquarters. Okay, so it's highly politicized and it's highly, um, oh, I'm sorry, boulderized? I mean, I don't know. It's a common expression, but I mean, it's it's really, they, they take out anything that has any real meat in it. Um, and again, I mean, I worked there you know, I was on the ground there for, you know, seven and a half years during the first uprising. And the State Department reports on, you know, the human rights violations in the, the West Bank, you would, you know, kind of think, well, you know, the Israelis were the victims. I mean, it's uh, it's a very, very sanitized report. And I mean, some stuff does get in there, but mostly no. So for asylum, you know, you are claiming, you know, either past persecution or fear of future persecution on the basis of one of the protected categories, race, nationality, religion, membership in a particular social group, political opinion. Uh, what are some of the common, what are the most common bases for claiming asylum that you find among Palestinians? It would be political opinion. You know, sometimes we try to argue religion. Sometimes we try to argue particular social group, but in most of my cases, it's um, political opinion. I mean, the majority of Palestinians are Muslims. There is a Christian minority of Palestinians, and I know that there are some of them in Gaza. I'm wondering uh, if, you know, if there's been any, have you raised any claims uh, of religious minorities amongst the Christians? I mean, especially with in view, I have I I am not familiar with the conditions for the Christian minority in Gaza, for example, under Hamas. Um, I don't know whether those types of issues have come out in any of the claims that you've raised. Um, also, I can envision, for example, let's say you're dealing with an individual who is LGBT. Uh, you know that would be a social group. Uh, you know, asylum claim, and I definitely think that conditions are probably 
very inhospitable. That's putting it mildly, extremely harsh, probably both in Gaza and in the West Bank um, for, for that category. So I'm wondering if you've seen, besides political opinion, have you seen any of these other bases? Well, yeah. And in LGBT cases, um, um, the the same problem exists um, that exists with people who have, um, you know, drug problems. Now, for LGBT cases, you know, I did one, you know, based on persecution, but we argued both that they faced a risk from the Palestinian Authority, that they faced the risk from Hamas, and the same problem with being recruited as collaborators. I mean, the recruitment of collaborators by the Israeli military in the LGBT community is is very, very common. It's very, very well known. That's funny how that works, Marty. I mean, why would that be going on? Why would they be doing that? And, and how does that play out? LGBT individuals, both men and women, in the, the, the West Bank and in Gaza are very much persecuted by their own communities. And what the Israelis would do is they would say, well... How would you like us to tell everyone in your community that you're gay? How would you like us to expose the fact that you are gay in your community? And they put pressure on people to um, collaborate. Same thing with the, the permit system. In many of these cases that I'm aware of, the individual from the West Bank has a romantic partner who's Israeli, and they you know, try to go back and forth the Israelis can wave a permit in front of their nose, right? And say, you want to go see your boyfriend? Well, we can give you a permit to go back and forth, but you have to provide us with information. But as to other types of discrimination, like, you know, do the Israelis treat Muslims differently from Christians? No, I mean, the Israelis persecute everybody equally, at least their equal opportunity in that way. Hi, do you want to add anything about the, the status of Palestinian Christians, either on the West Bank or in Gaza? I mean, uh, both under the occupation and in, in the case of Gaza under Hamas. Do you have any? So I don't know of uh, many Palestinian Christians in Gaza. I know that there's a big concentration of them in Ramallah and Bethlehem. There is a little bit in Area C, Old uh, Jerusalem, but not much. They are persecuted the same way that the Palestinian Muslims are. So if there was a church, I, th I believe it was, so wherever there is some mountains or hills, that's where they like to build their, the settlements, the Israeli, those settlements that are illegal under international law. And there was a church at one point on a hill that they burned down because they wanted to take that. Um, with regards to the collaborators, I totally agree with Marty. I mean, even um, my sister, when she married her husband, we had known that he was in the Israeli jails as a youth for about four to six months. So we knew that he wasn't going to get a visa to when he got married to my sister. But even though that she, uh, she did a petition for him as her husband, um, after the NBC processing and him getting that personal permit, the Tasrih, to go into East Jerusalem for the interview, he had to come with a police certificate, a clearance certificate from the IDF. And he went into that station to get the clearance certificate and didn't come out for hours. And then when he came out, there was a lot of rumors that he is a collaborator now, that they were glad that he is leading. 
to the United States because they don't know what he did. And maybe he promised them some information. I, I don't know. But he's been here for 20 years. He doesn't want to go back. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it's a big deal. I mean, if he comes back, I'm sure he owes them some information. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and again, I don't do any visa work at all. I mean, I'm 100% defense against removal, but um, from talking to, to colleagues who do um, different types of visas, one of the biggest problems they have is trying to get a clean criminal record report from the Israeli military. And, you know, I, I promise I'm not exaggerating. Okay. I lived there for seven and a half years. I only know one one Palestinian male who never spent any time in Israeli custody. Only one. How did he manage that? Any thoughts on why he was why he was so lucky? You know, I don't really know. I mean, it's like you guys blessed or something. I, I have no clue at all why he never got picked up. You know, and he was a. It, I, I think it may be because he was an archaeology student, um, and he had some, um, you know, friends at. Hebrew University, but I, I really don't know why he never got arrested. But only one. I mean, I must have met hundreds, you know, if not thousands of, of Palestinian males. And, and he's the only one. So if you, if you try to get a, a clean, you know, record report from the Israeli military for different visa purposes, you know, it's really, really hard. Marty, of the Palestinians that you're dealing with in removal, um, you know, their original entry into the United States, what are some of the common patterns that you find? Were they people who were brought here by family members? I mean, did they, or, you know, how, how did a lot of these uh, Palestinians arrive or does it run the gamut? Um, it runs the gamut. Um, some of my clients came in initially on student visas. Some came in initially on on family on family petitions. There's really no um, common rules. Um, some even came on on tourist visas and overstayed. Let's go back to the political opinion ground for asylum. Um, let's talk about some of, you know, how this plays out, uh, the details of it. So, what are some of the common, you know, sort of political opinion claims that you would be making? I mean, people who support one or another faction or they don't support Hamas and that's the political opinion or what, you know, how does it, how does it work out? I've had some opposition to uh, Hamas and being persecuted by Hamas, but, you know, it's very difficult to argue that, you know, you're feel persecution because you oppose the occupation because the United States supports the occupation. So, I mean, they're not, um, that's, not necessarily think. And the other thing too is, I mean, the, you know, the State Department, you know, tries to claim that the only time, you know, the Israelis will arrest or detain or persecute Palestinians is when they're a security risk. So, I mean, even though, and again, I mean, even people who are like nonviolent activists against the Israeli occupation are arrested and detained and treated as if they're terrorists. I would imagine because I have seen uh, ICE raise the material support for terrorism bar uh, under the most, I don't want to call them innocuous, but under the slightest indication uh, that someone had engaged in a protest, which, you know, became violent. Um, so I can imagine that there could be a large number of people who could I mean, let's let's talk about that. I mean, the material support for terrorism bar. How how often does that come up? And 
you know, in cases where it's really being misapplied, how do you, you know, how would you go about combating that? Well, I'll give you a real example. And this was a case, unfortunately, I actually lost where my client um, admitted, okay, that he gave 10 shekels, which at the time was $3 to his mosque, the imam of which, okay, was um, suspected of being a member of Hamas. Okay, so he donated $3 to his mosque and the imam of the mosque was suspected of being a Hamas member and they didn't, they tried to deport him based on material support for terrorists. That, that's a true story. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, and, you know, the, the thing is that any Palestinian resistance to the occupation is viewed by the Israeli authorities as being terrorism, even if it's nonviolent. And getting over that is just really, really difficult. And, I mean, m most of the Palestinian cases that I win are, are based on DCAP. Uh, sorry, deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture, because under that, it doesn't really matter the reason why you were persecuted. And in fact, you know, what we can do in those cases is we aggregate the risk factors. So, I mean, the fact that they face risks from the Israeli authorities, from the Palestinian authorities, from Hamas, and from society as a whole works to our advantage. Right. So they can't deny DCAT based on the fact that they, you know, had material support for terrorism because we actually use that to our advantage because it shows one of the reasons that they're at risk. Um, crazy as that sounds. No, it, I mean, it makes legal sense. And Marty, uh, DCAT is a temporary form of relief in the sense that you are, it's deferral of removal. It isn't, it isn't cancellation of removal. It's the removal order exists to get a removal order, but it is deferred. Um, so, I mean, what happens, I, you know, have, have they ever, has ICE ever come back and actually removed uh, people that you've won, you know, cat a cat claim for, um, or do you expect them to do that? And are they currently removing people to the Palestinian territories? How does, how does that work? I mean, it is, it is temporary, sound like a lawyer now, um, it's only temporary in, in the sense that um, it's not permanent. I mean, it can be withdrawn, unlike asylum. But the only way they can withdraw someone's DCAT grant is if the circumstances on the ground change materially. And, you know, I, uh, I you know, have a lot of DCAT cases. And, you know, I've lectured on DCAT. I gave a panel on DCAT at um, AILA. And I, I've, uh, sorry, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, I've never heard of a DCAC grant being successfully withdrawn. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it does okay. happen, maybe, but I, I've never heard of it. Now, on DCAT, can you petition your family? No. Um, well, that's that's the dis the main disadvantage of DCAT, and <clears throat> DCAT doesn't by itself lead to any permanent status, right? So, I mean, if you have asylum, eventually you get a green card, eventually you get citizenship, right? Under DCAT, no, it's just, um, it's just for you. Um, the only real benefit to DCAT is, um, well, they can't deport you, um, and you get a, a work permit, but it's not a path to any type of permanent status, 
and you can't petition for your family members. And Marty, why are you not able to get withholding of removal as opposed to having to go to the CAT claim? Most of my DCAT cases, people have really serious criminal convictions. But um, even withholding of removal, that's not really permanent either. I mean, it's only withheld. The net-net is it's your, your in practically the same situation as you would be with the cat relief. I was just wondering why you, why you had to go to cat relief rather than, I mean, usually, I mean, if you have, a, of course, if you have a claim that you're claiming someone's going to be tortured, you bring in a cat claim, but usually the progression, I mean, you would love to win asylum if you can, for if for whatever reason, the client is ineligible for asylum, usually next you go to withholding, you would bring the cat claim in if, if torture, potential for torture plays into the, into the equation. I, I guess, in your circumstance, it just so happens that the potential, first of all, you're mentioning that the clients have criminal convictions, which probably bar them. If you have a particularly, if, if I'm quoting the standard, and I don't have the statue in front of me, but Marty will correct me if I'm misquoting the statue, the it's a, it's a particularly serious crime of a non-political nature that would bar you from withholding. Is that correct? Correct. And um, um, I, I actually call myself a cat evangelist. Um, most, okay. m- many, many, many attorneys are, are scared of cat because the standard is supposed to be higher. So in cat cases, you have to show that there's a 51% chance or greater of them um, being um, persecuted and tortured, right? On asylum cases, it's supposed to be 10% that you only have to show that there's a 10% chance of you being persecuted. I've never met an attorney who's gone into court and said, your honor, there's a 10% chance of my client being persecuted. So the, the, no. And in fact, CAT and, you know, has a bunch of advantages. First of all, you don't have to show that the persecution on the basis of any statutory basis, right? Um, you can aggregate the risks um, together. You don't have to show proof of past persecution. You only have to show risk of future persecution. Um, and for a lot of my clients who left their countries when they were three or four, right, and face real risks now, um, that's a huge advantage. A lot of my LGBT cases are that way. That, you know, they left when they were, you know, before they even realized their sexual preference. Um, and they only face the risk of future persecution now if they get sent back. You can't get asylum on that basis, but you can get relief under CAT. Understood. It's, it's clever and it's, it's something good for, for practitioners to know. Hi, by way of background, I mean, in terms of the client base that you're dealing with among the Palestinians, can you just give us uh, some color and context as far as language proficiency, issues of English proficiency, and also economic circumstances. What are the people like that you've been dealing with in your practice? So my clients are are mostly younger. (laughs) They are able to learn the English language. And because it's a second language in Palestine, um, in the West Bank and Gaza, um, that is not usually a problem. I believe if you have an older client that's maybe over 60 and can get a waiver for the proficiency test, that's that's something. But mine are usually um, younger. They can speak English. And most of them 
are financially doing well here. Their issue is, I mean, Tumusaya, the village I come from, is they call it the Hollywood of the West Bank for a reason. We all have villas. We all have, I believe, over 50% of the population has dual citizenship with the U.S. or green card holders. It is a very prominent place. And um, when I was talking about the death of um, that young man, uh, Mr. Kutten, uh, on June 21st, the reason why the backlash against my village was so big was because Almost everyone there was American. So they just took out their phones and did the TikToks and the YouTube videos and look at these Israeli settlers coming down. The IDF was very upset about the social media backlash. And they came down and terrorized the village even more. They would do uh, nightly raids. Um, and in one situation, they went into a home and took over $170,000 that the, the family had in cash. So... The financial situation of Palestinians here and the ones that are supporting, of course, their people back, back home is good. It's just bringing their family here. Um, so in the West Bank, again, it's, it's easier. You can get that personal permit. You have your identity card, Palestinian identity card. You get that personal permit to travel to East Jerusalem. Then you get that police certificate from the IDF, which might take a little bit of giving up some information or something, but you could do it. But uh, some of my clients from Gaza, I have clients here on, there's one on a student visa. And he came in last Monday, right after the attacks. And he said, please, please bring my wife and two kids. So he's about 23 years old, but he had two young toddlers. Just bring them. And I was like, even if we do some kind of application or a derivative, how am I going to do it? How are they going to travel to East Jerusalem? And he was flashing his money, just help me. And I couldn't because there's nothing. And take your money and then they're not going to make the interview. There's no way for them to travel. So it's it's just, it's it's more uh, heart, heartening about the political situation and the barrier that they're in, how to get to the check, through those checkpoints to the sea uh, location, which is East Jerusalem, than it is a financial issue. Understood. Well, it sounds like at least uh, at your practice, you're dealing with people whose whose economic circumstances are probably a lot more fortunate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have five children. I need to, I need to be paying my bills. Understood. Of course. All right, uh, Marty. Have um, some of these presidential proclamations? I mean, and some of the other executive actions have in the last, let's say, 20 to 25 years targeted people of Middle Eastern extraction. I'm thinking about uh, the NSEERS program that was put into place after 9-11. And I don't know whether you were actively in practice at that time, but there was a program called the NSEERS. And then, of course, during the Trump administration, we had the presidential proclamation barring entry from various countries, many of which were located in the Middle East, uh, Syria, Iraq, Libya, to name a few. I don't believe the Palestinians were specifically covered under that proclamation. Um, have you had any experience with any of those executive type actions? And then part two of the question would be, you know, let's suppose um, Donald Trump manages to get reelected for another term uh, in 2024. Um, what would be your expectation as to, you know, how things might change or new issues that you're Well, I mean, because I pretty much do exclusively removal 
were, I mean, my clients aren't affected by that. But I mean, let's look at what's happening now in Gaza. Okay, the United States is trying to claim that there's nothing that they can do to get American citizens out of Gaza, but they rent a, uh, a cruise ship, right, to get Israelis out of, um, is with dual citizenship out of Israel. Do you really expect us to believe that we're powerless to get these Gazan Americans out? Okay. If, I mean, no, right? I mean, it's obvious that we're doing absolutely nothing to try to get them out. And the Israelis know that we're going to do nothing, which is why they are doing nothing. Well, we're getting to the end of the hour. It's been a fascinating discussion, but I do want to ask both of our guests one more question. Um, can you recommend uh, any ways in which our listeners can contribute in a humanitarian fashion uh, to, you know, helping to alleviate or provide relief uh, in the in, in in the affected areas, the Palestinian territories right now? Uh, Doctors Without Borders, I think, is a very credible organization which does its best to provide emergency medical assistance in in areas affected by conflict or natural disasters. Yeah, I mean, I would um, definitely recommend the um, um, Palestinian Red Crescent Society, which is the um, Palestinian equivalent of the Red Cross. Um, also, on um, the Israeli organization uh, Physicians for Human Rights um, is also very key. And now, um, because the just the massive scale of the human rights violations, um, Israeli organizations like B'Tselem, which documents human rights violations in the occupied territories. And on the Palestinian um, side, um, um, I would you know recommend that people don't make donations to Al-Haq. Um, full disclosure, that's where I worked for seven and a half years. But um, I think that amongst the Palestinian human rights organizations, they by far do the best work. Thank you for that. Well, I want to thank both of our guests, uh, attorneys Haya Abdel and Marty Rosenbluth uh, for discussing with me issues faced by Palestinians in crisis, uh, specifically relating to U.S. immigration system. Uh, thanks, both of you, uh, for a fascinating discussion. Thank you, James.